0: This is a Need 10 Media production. All right, welcome aboard, my friends. It's Nate Claiberg, And in this episode, I get to introduce you to someone, maybe she said all aboard or, or welcome aboard, but we're going to bring in here very shortly, Michelle Baker. But Michelle has worked for the mouse for many years and now is going on her own. To share what she learned in that experience with individuals and, and businesses. And I've got to know Michelle through uh, Dan Cockrell's purge community. And, and you've heard Jody Mayberry on this podcast before. We've talked about that is how we've got connected. But again, in this show, I introduce you to people who have jobs and we talk about jobs and careers and pathways that people maybe have an interest in or even know what they were or even how to get there. But Michelle, first off, welcome to the podcast. And I want to go back to the title that's prevalent in your LinkedIn experience, and it's operations manager with Disney. And did you even know what an operation manager was or what they'd even be doing when you were sitting there in high school deciding what your next step was, if you think back?
1: No, I I sure didn't. And first of all, Nate, I just have to say this because as you're going through your intro... Um, First of all, I'm a big fan of your work. I love listening to your podcast and and listening to you on some of our networking calls. Um, And please don't tell him I said this, but I really believe it's a toss up whether you have a better podcasting voice or Jody Mayberry has a better podcasting voice. I don't know. You might have to have well, a show I,
0: I think whatever podcast you're on is probably what your preference is going to be. I yeah. would say we have two different styles. Yeah. But yeah, Jody's hands down got more podcasting time than yeah. I do. But I, appreciate I, it.
1: I like to put and you are, you have a wonderful voice. And I know that it comes from experience from way before you started doing podcasts. But there's also a little bit of a thread that I love to poke fun at Jody. So, uh, yeah, but it's, seriously, both of you do a really nice job in this space. So going back to your question about being an operations manager at Disney, I didn't even know I wanted to work for Disney. It wasn't a childhood dream. It wasn't something that I always aspired to. Um, But I ended up working for a financial services company in Orlando, Florida, for a pocket of time. And at the end of that seven years, the company went out of business. And I just wanted to have a little bit of fun again, because it was one of the worst years of my leadership career. And so I decided to work for the Happiest Place on Earth, you know, the biggest company in Orlando, Florida. So I went down I-4 and got a job at Disney. And at the time, I was just going to do that for a year or maybe two. But I got lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. And I actually got hired on to be a part of the operating or the opening team for Disney Cruise Line, two years before the Disney Magic was built, three years before the, the Wonder came out. And obviously, the, the rest is history. I didn't say a year or two. I stayed 17 years and two years on board the ship as an officer. But no, I had no idea what an operations manager was. I just wanted to contribute. I wanted to lead others because it was my experience. I wanted to, like many people, climb the corporate ranks for Disney. And so the opportunity came up to lead the contact center, which I did for eight years. And and I got to tell you, leading teams at Disney is one of the the best parts of my entire leadership career.
0: Well, go back to that, you know, the financial firm closed and, and you're looking for an opportunity. <laughs> you know, it, it's I think that there's jobs out there that people think they want to be in and there's jobs that they, you know, end up doing. And when you were going to Disney casting, I'm, I'm sure your thought was you're going to be in the parks or you're going to be in a resort or something like that. And then. Here you are is, no, we're going to put you on the water. Talk about just that process when you go back to your beginning of getting on at Disney and then shipping you off.
1: Yeah, I love that. And it brought back so many memories, Nate. So picture this, if you will. When I was driving down I-4 on the way to my interview, we were on the way to just walking into casting to get a job. I had all these things running through my head in terms of absolutes. I absolutely needed to make this much an hour. I absolutely needed at least one weekend day off. I absolutely didn't want to work evenings. And so I had all these things really in my mind that it's like, okay, if, it, if it's not this, then I'm not going to take the job. Well, Disney does a really nice job of recruiting. First of all, are you familiar with the casting building in Orlando, Florida?
0: Yep. Right off the interstate there. Yeah,
1: yep, it is absolutely, it, it's an experience in and of itself. So you walk through these huge gold doors where the doorknobs are actually out of Alice in Wonderland. And you walk into this small atrium lobby where the Fab Five are in these gold statues looking down at you. And then you walk up this long hallway where they've got just all this great Disney animation and art. And then as you're sitting there waiting for your interview, you're watching Disney movies and you're watching videos that are intentionally kind of designed to fire you up about working for the company. Let me tell you, by the time I actually sat in front of a recruiter after all of that, I was willing to take any job at any pay rate. I'll work weekends. I'll work nights. What do you need from me? I'm in. And so I know that there's a little bit of subliminal kind of work going on there as you're going through the process. But yeah, I say I was lucky to get on the opening team for Disney Cruise Line because I think I just connected with a recruiter. I just connected and, and she saw something in me and sent me over for a second interview. But at the time, Disney Cruise Line was only hiring two types of people. They were hiring people that had Disney experience and they were hiring people that had cruise experience, so industry experience. I had none of the above. But somehow through you know interviewing and connections and just continuing to be Really passionate about what was coming, you know. I kind of snuck in and became part of that opening team. A year later, I was a, an operations manager, so it worked out really well.
0: Well, generally, we were talking about, and I've read and heard things about it is hard to get into Disney, you know, if you don't have any experience, and and especially if you don't even, you know, you don't live in that area. But but something key that pointed out, and maybe you saw this as you were doing some hiring, you know, through your career, and maybe have advised people. She saw something in you and kind of matched up with, okay, you don't have cruise experience. You don't have Disney experience. You live in the, in the area code, at least. Mm-hmm. She saw something to match you up. Uh, you had you That's got to be special. And you've probably been able to advise that down the line.
1: Yeah, I think so too. And at Disney, we used to have an expression, at least at Disney Institute where we would hire for attitude and train for aptitude. And so I remember you know, connecting with that first recruiter on the topic of leadership. And I don't know how it came up. She wasn't hiring a leadership role. But we were just talking about how to care for individuals, how to lead individuals, how to drive business results. And so we kind of went down this rabbit hole in terms of what it takes to be an effective leader, even though I was literally being interviewed for an hourly position. And I think that carried over into my second interview as well, where I just connected or maybe i just became passionate about the topic of leadership as we were and without even realizing it and there was just something that both of those interviewers saw that said you know i want to fight for her i know she doesn't have this box checked or even this box checked but she's got something she can add to what we're trying to do on this opening team and and i like i said i spent 17 years there and and only left because it was time to come off ships after being out to sea for two years and and um, went over as the director of the Disney Institute at that point.
0: So, yeah, I want to get more into the Disney Institute, but of course I want to dive full into the cruise opportunity. Were you all on land originally for DCL and then went to sea? How how far was that gap?
1: Fifteen years, shoreside. So I saw the magic come out from, shore, you know, from the shoreside operations team, the wonder as well. And then as you know, because I know you've been on all four ships, there was a large gap between the, the classic ships and then the dream class ships. But in 2011, I started doing some recruiting for the college program. So I moved to Tennessee for a pocket of time. I was doing recruiting for um, the college program at Walt Disney World and Disneyland. And it was through that connection that I was sent an opportunity to join the, short, the uh, ship team, so that specifically the Disney Dream, as an officer, so I was a two and a half stripe officer. I was part of the human resources team. I did everything from training new officers when they made that transition from crew to the officer level to you know just helping cat crew members out. They were my audience. But that two years at sea was something that I just could not have prepared for, other than to really try to understand what it might be like to live and work and breathe and eat on a vessel. And all throughout that journey of, of interviewing, I think I probably went through five interviews to get the officer role. Um, everyone said, it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. It's not a job, it's a lifestyle. And they can paint every picture in the world to try to describe what it might feel like. But until you were out there seven days a week, working 10 to 14 hours a day with no days off for four to eight months at a time, you don't realize, you know, what a shift in your in your life it was. It turns out I loved it, so I really had a, a blast out there. It was just a little bit hard on my family, Nate, which is why after four contracts in two years, I decided to come back to land.
0: Yeah, you know that's a question when you when you look at these opportunities. I know we talked about this of all the different things that happen on a cruise ship, whether it's uh, Disney or any one of those other lines. You want to talk about them, but all the different things that are happening from you know being face forward with the guest or behind the scenes or just in operations, things like that, you know, on the cruise ships that on the cruises that we've been in, it's fun to strike up conversations with the crew and finding out where they're from and the contracts they're on and and the families that they're doing this for, especially the international ones that are working, dining or or hospitality or some of those areas. Yeah, there is that sacrifice that you go and it's like you said, it's it's a chunk of time. And it is not just, I had to laugh when you said you went to Disney looking for one weekend off and didn't want to work nights. Yeah. A- and look where you're at when you get to the cruise ship.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah, that, that shifted a lot. You mentioned Nate, on stage and uh, conversations and, and backstage and so on. Like I mentioned earlier, my, my guest was the crew. And I did go on stage and I got to meet with families and do pin trading and all that fun stuff, um, which was really fun. But my primary audience was the crew. And I can tell you with very, very rare exceptions, the men and women that you got to meet while you were a guest on those ships, the crew members, the officers that you got to interact with were the same men and women that I got to interact with backstage. So it wasn't a situation where where they're in front of Nate and his family. They're having this pleasant conversation and they're really interested in, in your experience. And then they come backstage and they're grumpy. No pun intended. No disrespect to the seven dwarfs but they're just not in a good mood and they're miserable to be around. It wasn't that at all. They were the same men and women that would smile and nod when they walked by me in a crew hallway um, where you were sitting next to someone at dinner and they would strike up a conversation about where are you from? How long have you been on board? Is this your first ship? And so I give a lot of credit to the Disney Cruise Line recruiters because they, we literally have, see, it's still we, it's been several years, but We literally had a crew from 60 different nations on our ships at various times, and that takes a a really concerted effort to work with different hiring agencies throughout the world to bring on the type of talent that is going to uphold the Disney brand.
0: Well, Ian, just thinking of operations, and I want to, I've got to pick your brain here a little bit. When you look at the time we went through, you know, in, in 2020 and 2021, if you were in I'm sure there were some times you were thinking about what they were going through. You know, when you look at shutting down the cruise line industry for that period of time. Talk about that.
1: Yeah, I didn't experience that firsthand. So I can only make some assumptions and and go based on, you know, what I've read. But as a former onboard officer and just understanding the logistics in a normal year of getting Literally every week, we would have, let's just say, 150 crew members joining the vessel, one vessel, and then 150 people ending their contract and going home. And when I say going home, they're going to the United States, they're going to the Philippines, they're going to Germany, they're going to South Africa. So just think about the logistics involved in keeping that rotation going every single week on four different ships, now five. It is a monstrous effort. So as we, as I watch things kind of, Accelerate in 2020. The uncertainty must have been really, really difficult in terms of: Are we sailing? Are we not sailing? Are we sa- Is it going to be just a couple of weeks? Is it going to be a month? Is it going to be more? And then add to that the complexity of: I mean, we saw how quickly things started shutting down, and countries were starting to shut down their borders. So now you've got crew members that are on ships that their home countries are going, ah, not right now. Let's just wait. And so now, where do they go? Do they stand. So logistically, again, I was not there firsthand, but I can only imagine what a nightmare that was to try to to get everybody back to safely, because safety was our number one priority, obviously, at Disney, to get people back safely home and then to hopefully keep them engaged enough to where when the ships did start to sail again, that they would, we didn't have to, see, it's still weak, that Disney line <laughs> didn't have to start from scratch in terms of recruiting talent.
0: Well, you know, when you talk about all that talent, all the people from all over the world that end up on those cruise ships and, you know, what are some of the positions through there that people would be surprised as far as the work, whether it's somebody coming in either on the stage side or backstage side, or whether they have the education and training or or trained on the job, what are some of those roles that people not necessarily would be surprised, but maybe would be interested in knowing about that they don't even think about?
1: Yeah, uh, I'd love to unpack that for a few seconds here because I did not know until I got on board just how many people it took to not only create the guest experience that you got to see, uh, but the infrastructure of running a floating city. So think about everything that's needed just from a crew perspective, because I didn't go to work every day. And then at the end of my shift, get in my vehicle or a bus or subway or whatever and go home. I walked down the hallway and there was my cabin. And I walked upstairs and went to the the mess and, you know, I went back to the office, which again was just going down a a crew passageway. And so some of the roles that people may not know about are the non-guest facing roles. So there's everything from, you know, the crew laundry to the payroll office to, you know, people just running crew spaces to make sure that they had everything they needed To maintain a healthy lifestyle, Uh, we had even a um, a crew, uh, my memory is fading a little bit, but basically a a crew entertainment manager, that their job was to solely, crew activities manager, the CAM, that's what it was. The crew activities manager, their entire role was based on what can I do to change things up for the crew, whether it's a crew-only event on Castaway Key. Or maybe we're going to do charades in the officer's bar on Tuesday night. Or we're just going to do some activities to get different people involved. Maybe have an open mic night. I mean, all these activities just for the crew members. So those positions exist. I think most people understand that there are servers and assistant servers, people responsible for children's programming, entertainment, and so on. But one of the things that my son was really interested in you know, just in terms of curiosity was that there's entertainers that step on stage, but think about how many roles it takes to put on a stage production, whether it's on the deck or in the Walt Disney theater, you know, so there's lighting, there's tech, there's the show director, there's like you were putting on a Broadway play, but at sea. And so if you think about everything that happens as a guest, Think about all of those roles, plus another complete layer of infrastructure to make it possible for those people to do the the roles that they're playing, basically.
0: Yeah, I think that's, the you know, there's a whole nother role that happens behind the scenes, if you will, because uh, the cast members are people and they sleep and eat and want to entertain and and want to relax, too, to keep uh, engaged uh, during long contracts. But, you know, when you look at, Michelle, your time there and then... Still with Disney, but another opportunity came on to do some training, do some uh, sharing of knowledge that you you had in your period, in your tenure with the Disney Cruise Line and the college program, things like that. Talk about your experience with the Institute, and uh, you followed that all the way up until just about a year ago.
1: I loved working for the Disney Institute. It was one of the highlights of my Disney career, for sure. About January of 2014, I decided it was time to start looking for something other than ship life. I was on a break at that point, and I loved being on ships. My son was first year in college, and it was really hard for him for me to be at sea that long because I'm a single mom, and you know, he's going into the University of Tennessee, and he knew that if he needed something, he couldn't just pick up the phone and call. He couldn't even text. He had to say, ah, it's Tuesday. I can't even reach her until Thursday. And so that started to really weigh on him and then other members of my family as well. So I ended up finding the role at Disney Institute and had worked with the vice president at the time, Jeff James, for many years while he was at Cruise. And so got the interview and actually while I was on break, got the offer to become part of the Disney Institute leadership team. Unfortunately, it's not a two week notice situation when you are a an officer at sea. I had to go back to... Um, the Disney Dream, and eventually the Disney Fantasy, where I want to say it was 10 or 12 weeks before I could actually start with DI. So instead of a, a two-week notice, I gave Disney Cruise Line like a three-and-a-half-month notice, but Disney Institute was patient. They waited for me to come back. <laughs> and it was just a phenomenal experience. I led the men and women that step on stage for Disney Institute, so the facilitators, the engagement managers, and so on, that provided the programs for people that would come to Disney for leadership or service or engagement, but also those that stepped on stage in front of our consulting clients, so our intact organizations that needed help with those very same topics. But to lead that talented group of people and to work with some of the peers that I got to work with over the years was just a phenomenal experience. And all I can tell you is uh, I remember the first couple of weeks there, and you think ship life is fast. I mean, the pace is just extraordinary. I found that at Disney Institute, it was even faster. It was like, you know, just the conversations were just going, going, going. And we had a program here and had to fly there. And it's just, it was like, you know, having a rapidly paced environment on steroids, but you either love it and you just get into that flow or it's just absolutely overwhelming. And, and for me, fortunately, I absolutely loved it and had a blast for seven years at DI.
0: Well, it just sounds like how fast, you know, from, uh, you know, Valerie Cockle has told stories and, and talking to Jeff Knoll as too, and his experience and then hearing from that. But you take that experience and all that Disney knowledge that they gave you and you earned, you went on your own. You said, you know what, I'm going to leave the W-2 world and I'm going to start my own deal. Talk about that. You know, it's one thing leaving a cruise ship and then uh, going on land for a regular job. But going on your own, I can speak from experience. Sometimes you feel like you get left on an island.
1: So in actually 2019 was sitting in the backyard with my son. We were in California at the time and we were sitting there. We both just respectively had this passion about starting our own business and we had very specific themes that we wanted to talk about. He's incredibly creative, does our website, our videos, all of our, our anything that's aesthetically pleasing. He's created my son, AJ. So we were having this conversation and we realized that if we didn't pull the trigger within the next couple of years, then he was probably going to need to go off in another direction. So I let uh, my leadership team know at that point. However, then they had this big project where they wanted me to come back to the East Coast for a year. And that was in February 2020 that they asked me to come back to the East Coast in March 2020 is when the, the movers were were getting ready to pull up. And of course, we all know what happened in March 2020. But to tell you just one very, very quick story, I kept moving the date up as things started to accelerate with COVID. And nobody at that point knew what to expect. Is this going to be this weird three months that we're all going to have to work through, for, through or what turned out to be several years? And we're still dealing with it. But I kept moving it up. And the day that I left, my friend had called and said, Michelle, they're getting ready to shut down the borders. You're not going to be able to leave California. And I told my son, I was like, AJ, we got to get in the car. Let's go. And so we basically got in the car. And have you seen the Bourne Identity movies?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: So I felt like Jason Bourne, my, my white knuckled on the steering wheel, just desperately trying to get to Arizona to get out of California or we would just be stuck. Of course, I don't think they ever shut down the borders, but we drove from... California to Orlando, Florida, that, you know, basically straight through, which was, you know, almost 40 hours. Uh, but we got it there, we crashed out. And then I never once went into the office, you know, I, they, of course, everyone started working from home at that point, I was part of the the small team of people at DI that kind of stayed working throughout that horrible furlough per- period that we went through. But that just basically led up to delaying the launch of Stone Ledge at the end of 2020 i just knew it was time it was either now or never and so we made the announcement that we, i was going to retire in march and uh, march 1st i officially retired from disney and we started stone ledge in richmond talk
0: about stone ledge you know where did that name come from talk about that i'm always interested in in the names and, and logos and things like that of of where they develop
1: from yeah so stone ledge is it's just gosh it feels like part of my being at this point but stone ledge represents Think about stone as that solid place that we all have inside of us. You know, we all have it, whether we connect with it every day or not is a completely different conversation. But if you're having a great day and you just have a, a great deal of faith in yourself and belief in yourself, that's the stone, that, that solid place. And then ledge is, is that courage when we're standing on the ledge, whether it's a diving board or jumping into a, a deep water that's down there, or even just taking that leap of faith you know, standing on the ledge and looking at unlimited possibilities. So combine that as Stone Ledge. It was also the the name of the a horse farm that I lived on when I was in Tennessee. We, we named that Farm Stone Ledge. Uh, and that enrichment just came because whether we're talking about leadership or even, you know, calming your own inner chaos, we feel the enrichment part is something that we can add to leaders, to teams, and even to individuals.
0: You know, talk about the people that that you're looking to help or the people you help. Who do you see as your ideal client and and who really would you invite to connect with you to, to see how you can help them?
1: Yeah, I, thank you for asking Nate, I think that we have found over time is that we are laser focused on one thing, and that's developing aligned leaders that people want to work for. So jobs become careers again. And the clients that we're working with right now are really twofold. It's the individual leader that is just feeling... Burned out. They feel like there's way too much being put on their plate. And typically, what happens is when people have too much put on their plate, one of two things that gets pushed to the wayside either developing their direct reports, so their employees, because they just don't have the time, or self care. They're not taking care of their own self. I know Dan likes to say, you know, you got to put your own oxygen mask on first. And so, the aligned leadership model is really teaching individuals and then helping organizations cultivate. Someone that understands how to develop their employees, someone that understands how to create their own intercom and balance, and then someone that, by the way, still works for a for profit organization. So you still got to drive those business results. And that's the, the model that we teach is how to do those three things effectively. And as we like to say, it, it's simple, not easy, but it is completely relevant. And it's so important to have that conversation right now, especially today when retention is such a struggle for companies because the landscape continues to shift as people are looking for more development. They're looking for more meaning in their work. And if my leader is not giving me the time or attention I need to grow as a human being and from a career perspective, it's just going to continue to keep that cycle of attrition going. And so we're trying to break that cycle.
0: Yeah, and you know, this is episode 23 of this podcast. And, and if anybody's listened to all of them, first off, thank you. <laughs> I'm amazed that you stuck with me or glad, I think is what I should say. But there's people like you, Michelle, that I've talked to and, and will continue to talk to that maybe in the end, someone says, oh, now they have their own business. Now they started their own business doing whatever. But I think that's the key thing when you talk about people starting their own thing or going out to to be a leader. That doesn't happen overnight. It, it's the experience that you had through Disney Cruise Line, through Disney College, through Disney Institute that gives you this to share that. And that's, I think, the challenge people think of. They want to run their own business, but you got to have the experience. You know, what can you offer up? And that's glad that you've been able to do that.
1: Yeah. That, and it took us a little while to get to the exact thing that we wanted to teach, but we went back to two things. What am I passionate about? And where's the depth of my experience? And I've led teams for Disney for almost 24 years, and I led teams uh, in the financial industry before that. And I, I've seen the impact of good leadership, and I've seen the impact of—I don't want to say bad leadership, but just leadership that is just too distracted with the tasks required to manage the operation that they forget about the skills required to lead other human beings. And I feel like I had a really good leadership journey, but I'm—I'm I'm telling you right now that I learned just as many things about leadership from the just god-awful mistakes I made, especially early in my career, as I did the things that went really well in in the later chapters. But it's not an exact science. You know, it's something that you need to be passionate about. It's something that you need to sometimes learn the hard way, different lessons and, and different things that kind of seep into your being. But with the model that we teach, we try to give people that foundational platform to really balance things. Because It's similar to that three-legged stool. If you're only focused on, you know, the priorities of the business, then either you're suffering, the employee's suffering, or both. If you're only focused on your employee and you're this collaborative, popular, you know, everyone wants to talk to you leader, that's wonderful. But are the needs of the operation slipping and are your needs slipping as well? And so we teach people how to to make decisions that are going to keep all three of those very important aspects in balance.
0: Well, Michelle, it's a great way to close this out and congratulations on, on your career that you had through Disney and uh, congratulations on going out there and and uh, offering what you have to, to other people and uh, doing your own thing alongside, especially alongside with your son. I appreciate you being on.
1: I appreciate the time. It's always really nice to talk to you, Nate.
0: Thank you. We'll put the links uh, to connect with her on LinkedIn, as well as her website, Stone Ledge Enrichment com. Thank you again for listening and being on this journey and please subscribe and share this podcast. It's called That's a Job. It's on Spotify, Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The That's a Job podcast presented by Career Venture Academy and the College and Career Discovery Course. Discover the work you are wired to do and now go live your career adventure. If you haven't done so already, hit subscribe to enjoy future episodes. Build your career adventure at nateklayberg.com. Production assistance provided by Bill Jordan voiceovers. Visit billjordanvo.com. This podcast is a Need 10 Media production.